Welcome to the Think Yourself Healthy podcast, where we challenge you to think differently about your approach to health and wellness. My name is Heather Duranja, and I'm excited to be here with you to take you on the journey from surviving to thriving. Hello, everybody. On today's episode of Think Yourself Healthy, I have special guest, Dr. Julie Greenberg in the house, and she is a licensed naturopathic doctor who specializes in integrative dermatology. She is the founder of the Center for Integrative Dermatology, a holistic clinic that approaches skin problems by finding and treating the root cause. Dr. Greenberg holds degrees from Northwestern University, Stanford University, and Bastyr University. She lectures at naturopathic medical schools and speaks at conferences across the U.S. on the topics of hair, skin, and nails. Wow, what a nice little uh, introduction. Congratulations on all of your accolades. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Heather. It's really a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm excited to talk with you because, you know, autoimmune conditions, mental health conditions, um, substance abuse, all of these things ultimately have side effects, symptoms, circumstances that result with significant skin issues. And the reality is most of our population is out there trying to purchase all kinds of quick fixes, topical creams, moisturizers to put on their skin to fix the problem. And as you and I both know, we got to get to the root of the problem in order to heal and cure whatever is happening on the outside. So tell me a little bit about what brought you down this pathway and this specialty that you're in. Yeah, well, it was a little circuitous and it, it actually fits with me being a naturopathic doctor. So, you know, in order to find and treat the root cause as a naturopathic doctor, we say treat the whole person. And I know you agree that all the systems are connected. Some, for some reason in Western medicine, we've chopped them up and it's like, oh, if you're having you know, mental or emotional problems, go see a psychiatrist or a therapist. If you're having problems with your skin, you go see a dermatologist. Upset stomach, go see gastroenterologist. And we pretend like those are three completely separate issues and they're not, they're all related. Um, and so as a naturopathic doctor, that's one of our tenets is treat the whole person. It's one person, everything is related. So my journey to focusing on derm actually started with thyroid. I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition in my late twenties. Um, after I finished business school, which is really common, we've gone through a lot of people go through stressful schooling. Um, and then as soon as we finish the body's kind of like, you know, deep breath sigh of relief. And then we get hit with something. And when I went to, I went, of course, to, you know, the leading uh, endocrinologist in Los Angeles, where I lived and was very shell-shocked from that appointment. I had never really had a health crisis and the head of USC endocrinology, which is a huge medical institution was like, well, we don't know what causes it. We don't really know how to fix it. Um, you're probably going to be overweight and tired the rest of your life. We're going to give you this thyroid medication with, but that'll just increase year after year. And I walked out just absolutely shell-shocked and floored. And it sent me on a personal journey trying to understand, um, you know, that just felt so wrong to me that that was it. And I started researching our food and, 
you know, realized how kind of crazy our food system is. And then I started researching personal care products because there was a link I found between things in our personal care products and endocrine disruptors. And so that's how I got to dermatology and skin was through the thyroid gland. And I think it's fitting because all systems are connected. Absolutely. And I could not agree with you more. It baffles me how systematic the Western medical approach is. They treat us as if we are a piece of machinery and we have parts that need to be, you know, individual parts. And the reality is we are a whole. It's like dominoes. When one goes down, they all start to go down. So thank you for that explanation, um, you know, with describing what you do as a naturopath. I think there's a lot of misconception or confusion out there of who is a naturopath? How are they different than a Western medical doctor? And so the fact that you emphasize we treat the entire person, mind, body, and, you know, probably soul in there as well. It's extremely um, important for others to understand that. Also, I love the fact that you listen to that intuition and you knew, no, this doesn't feel right for me. I can't accept this as my truth and my reality. And you challenge that by doing the research and using discernment to come up with your own conclusions on what was going to be best to treat yourself and bring you back to being that whole healthy longevity, vital individual. So I commend you for your efforts and I'm honored to have you, you know, sharing, sharing your experiences with us. Thank you. I, I think there's such a big movement now. I would say, you know, all of my patients and I'm sure all of your listeners, they have that feeling, right? That, you know what, the explanations that I'm getting out there, they don't make sense. And just taking pills to squash symptoms that then actually give me more symptoms. So I have to take more pills you know, there is this unease out there amongst um, a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world that something isn't right in our medical system. And we have to go back to basics. We have to go back to the root cause. And of course, you know, issues as naturopathic doctors, we, we are trained in pharmaceuticals and we will prescribe sometimes depending on the state and licensure, but we start with those fundamentals. What are you eating? We spend so much of our time in a naturopathic visit talking about what goes in your mouth and what does it look like when it comes out? So you're going to talk about poop and food a lot with a naturopathic doctor, you know, and sadly, um, conventional MDs, they can get through med school without any nutrition education. We have years of nutrition education and it's on our board. So we have to pass nutrition to become naturopathic doctors, which I think every doctor should have to do that. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, when I share with individuals, when I'm doing education and sharing that, you know, most conventional doctors, if they have any nutrition education, it's typically less than six hours throughout their entire experience going through school and their fellowship and, and whatnot. And the sad thing is, is that we've been taught to just blindly trust our medical practitioners. We go in, they tell us, oh, you've got high tri triglycerides, you have imbalanced cholesterol, you're fasting glucose, blah, 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 blah. And we just trust whatever they say. And for most of, you know, most of the people that I interact with who have autoimmune disease specifically, they will tell me that they went to their doctor and their doctor told them nutrition has zero impact on what is happening in their body. And it floors me. I'm like, oh my gosh, you are kidding me. 
So I love the fact that you and I have this opportunity to bring more awareness to individuals that we have to stop just blindly trusting and we've got to start getting curious. What other options do we have rather than just taking a pill that's going to create more symptoms and potentially more core mobilities? Like we've got to get to the root of this, right? I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, patients will often ask me like, you know, well, what if there was one thing, one thing I could do? And, you know, I say, if there's, if there's really, you know, one thing that people can focus on, it's 35 grams of fiber a day, oh whatever God. you're doing, you've got to get 35 grams of fiber a day because that is going to do everything for you. It's going to feed the good guys in your microbiome. We have three to five pounds of bacteria in our gut and we need them to be good guys, not bad guys. And our whole eating and food system is set to really minimize the amount of fiber that we eat. You know, we're lucky if as a standard American diet, if you get 15 grams of fiber a day and it's just not enough, the food is critical. Uh, my dad's oncologist who is an older gentleman, when he first was diagnosed, I was hoping to get him on board to help my dad, you know, kind of prompted him like, what foods or what do you think he could change with his diet to help with the cancer? And this older gentleman oncologist said, no, food has nothing to do with, with cancer. And I just, you know, it took everything in me not to fall on the floor and just throw a tantrum. But um, yeah, it, it is starting to change, I think, with, with some of the younger doctors and they know that they're missing the nutrition piece, but still, I don't think they know what to do about it. It, it has to start getting built into that core education. But you and I are on the same page. It's, it is so much about what you are eating. Absolutely. Girlfriend, I preach fiber like there is no tomorrow. So hearing it come from your mouth just elates me. You are singing the same song and I absolutely love it. You know, from, from the diet recalls that I do and, and really investigating what people are eating, I see an average of about seven to 10 grams of fiber intake and they think that they're doing good. Yeah. They think they're doing good and it's just not enough. And so I am grateful that our, our uh, recommendation for fiber intake has recently been increased from 25 to 35. So at least we're moving in the right direction with that. But we have to get our food manufacturers in check. We've got to teach people how to eat to actually get both soluble and insoluble fibers in our diet because they're both necessary. They both have very specific jobs that work in correlation with one another. So we got to cover all our bases. We sure do. Uh, every single one of my patients after the first visit, their homework is go track your diet for three or four days, send me your fiber totals. And I say, we're not grading this. We just want to see where you're at and then see where we're going to try to get you to. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, it is, no one is going to get better and maintain health without proper nutrition. And that is whole foods, diet, and, and a lot of fiber and a diversity of plants. So there's new studies that show that 30 different plants a week is kind of that tipping point. Mm -hmm. And if you can get that in your diet and your family's diet, you are generally gonna be pretty healthy. And um, I, my patient's eyes kind of bug out, 30, 30 plants, you know, they think about standing at the market and putting 30 vegetables in their cart. But I say, you know, spices, herbs, and teas count. So we just always gotta be cooking with them. And it's actually really easy to get to 30 different plants oh, a week. Absolutely. Absolutely. So are you telling me that I can't get this through a pill like Juice Plus? 
And then, yeah, so I got a lot of questions from my patients. Well, can I just take fiber supplements to get there? What about that? And we talk about that. And, and, you know, the truth is it's not just the raw fiber, it's everything that comes around it in the plant. So there's polyphenols and phytonutrients, there's antioxidants, all of those things keep us healthy. They feed our microbiome. Again, we are not eating for one. And even if you're pregnant, you're not eating for two, you're eating for billions. You've got to feed your bacteria in your gut. They really are a part of who you are in your health and they need whole plants. I, we do say, you know, if, if they're really having trouble with maybe that last like three or four or five grams of fiber, then there are times where I say like, okay, let's, let's do a little supplement. Then we can get you there at the last leg, but you can't be supplementing like 10, 15, 20 grams of fiber with fiber supplements that defeats the purpose. You got to be eating whole food plants. Absolutely. Well, and we're missing the big hydration piece from that as well. We're also extracting fluids from these food-based products that we can consume to help support our hydration status because majority of the population is chronically dehydrated. And yeah. it, it cracks me up when I, you know, have conversations with women and they're talking about their hundreds of dollar creams that they're slathering on their faces, but they maybe drink six ounces of water a day and are pumping down energy drinks and coffee and black teas. And I'm like, well... Unfortunately, you're just accelerating the process. Those creams might be a little bit of a, you know, a slow, slower process, but ultimately we've got to start from within if we want to be able to have that beautiful, youthful appearance, right? A lot of the creams are sadly, women are spending hundreds of dollars on it. And, and not only are they not effective in terms of helping with aging and wrinkling, but they're actually absorbing toxic chemicals through their skin. Women on average put over 125 chemicals on their skin a day between all the personal care products. And most of that stuff, fragrance, parabens, emulsifiers, preservatives, we are absorbing all of it into our bloodstream and it is not good for us. That brings us back to the thyroid and endocrine disruptors, but many other toxins as well. So yeah, it is a shame when I see women focusing on these, I really try to steer them away towards really beautiful, gentle, natural botanicals that are good for the skin. And going back to, you can eat your way to healthy skin. You can reduce wrinkles with the food. Again, eating foods rich in colors, plants, um, a variety, and, and low sugar. Absolutely. I see it over and over and over again when I work with clients, and especially in the substance abuse populations, when mm -hmm. they come in and they're going through their detoxing process, their skin is just inflamed. I mean, it's just terrible. And with a matter of two weeks of them really focusing on changing their nutrition habits, I come in and I see them and they're glowing. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is this amazing, beautiful person that is standing before me? And then that boosts their confidence. They feel better with their increased confidence. They start to pursue other behavioral habits that are in their favor that help to support their ability to maintain sobriety. And it's just a beautiful thing that occurs. But I have a question for you. So when I had my, my youngest daughter, after I was done breastfeeding her, she started developing extreme eczema. Her eczema was so bad. It would be up her thighs, her arms, her face, her neck. 
and ultimately we ended up discovering that she was having um, issues with wheat and dairy-based products. And so we had to really clean up her diet in order to minimize the reactions that she was having. So can you kind of talk to the audience about what's going on with something like that when we see eczema and psoriasis and like rosacea presenting? Yeah, so across the board, it doesn't matter which dermatological disease you're talking about. It really does go back to gut dysfunction and leaky gut. So that microbiome, those three to five pounds we've been talking about the whole time and feed them fiber and make them happy, that has gone awry. So in my eczema babies, the babies, the toddlers, the kids, um, what's really common is I see eczema, cradle cap, and a dairy sensitivity or, or dairy allergy where they they break out when they drink cow's milk or goat's milk or something that's not mom's, or sometimes even mom's breast milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is usually there's a candida overgrowth going on. So there's too much yeast in their gut, but then there's also all sorts of bacterial overgrowth. So eczema in particular, one bacteria that is a super villain when it comes to eczema is called Staphylococcus aureus. We call it Staph aureus. It's on their skin causing all of that red, horrible, oozing damage. Um, it really causes problems for them. It colonizes the nose. So it's on their skin, it's in their nose and it's overgrown in their gut. So all of my patients, even though they're dermatology patients, we do stool and urine tests called organic acid tests on pretty much every patient. Cause I need to know exactly what's going on in their gut. So time and time again, in the eczema infants, the eczema toddlers, The bacterial overgrowth has run wild. They're too low in the good ones that are the calming immune system ones. And they're usually overgrown with candida as well. So there's this fungal mold kind of profile. We have to go in and clean it up. They are more susceptible to food allergies and food sensitivities. Um, There's a difference between a food allergy and a food sensitivity. So let's just talk about that quickly. A food allergy is called a an immediate reaction and it involves something called IgE, immunoglobulin E. And that's something where if you eat a piece of fish or a peanut and you immediately get hives or your mouth starts tingling or you have trouble breathing, that is a true allergy. And a lot of these eczema kids will have true food allergies. But there's also food sensitivities, which are delayed sensitivity reactions. And that involves a different um, type of immunoglobulin called IgG and IgA. And those are a little hard sometimes to suss out because you know if you eat a peanut and you have trouble breathing, you know when you have a food allergy, it's immediate, you know it. But with the food sensitivities, it's really hard sometimes because like maybe you ate wheat or you know a mango or salmon a couple days ago and then the eczema got worse a few days later. And it's like, well, was it the salmon? Was it the egg? It's hard to tell sometimes because of that delayed reaction, but both are true. Um, in eczema, particularly for the little ones. This is where I see food being a much bigger issue. Um, And it's also because they have leaky gut. And so they're not digesting their food properly. And then the food leaks into the bloodstream and the body sees it inappropriately. So instead of it being broken down into the little pieces that the body can actually use and wants to send out every cell in the body for nutrients, It's these bigger pieces that the body sees as like a foreign invader. And so we get these kind of ramped up reactions to foods. Whereas once I go in and I clean up all of that gut dysfunction that I've seen on the stool and the urine tests, 
the eczema babies and toddlers have far fewer food reactions than they did before because they don't have this leaky gut. Now, this is not to say, this is not going to fix a true food allergy, right? So they have like a peanut allergy. We're still not giving them peanuts even after we cleaned up their gut. But if it's like, gosh, I don't know, whenever he eats mango, it seems like it gets kind of crazy. And, but it's not like a true food allergy. Suddenly the kid can eat mangoes, no problem. Right. So let's talk about when these food particles get into the bloodstream and the immune system recognize them as these foreign invaders and they start to attack these, you know, food particles. This contributes to a chronic inflammatory response, right? That's exactly right. That does and the leaky gut being now that all the bad things that we saw, the candida overgrowth, the staph aureus overgrowth, those are also leaking into the bloodstream chronically. And the only way that the body has to respond to the situation is through inflammation. Mm -hmm. And that is the driver of chronic inflammation, not just in eczema, not just in all the diseases, germ diseases that you listed at the beginning, but it's the fundamental core of chronic disease in America. And we are so sick. If you look at adults in America, six out of 10 adults have a chronic um, inflammatory disease and four out of 10 have two or more chronic inflammatory diseases. And it really does all go back to this gut, the leaky gut, the dysbiosis. It's just all wrong from what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a very calm um, situation in our gut. And about 80% of our immune system is derived from our gut. So our gut is trying to like see how things are going and okay, is, is everything cool? Or is the Capitol building been breached? And do we have a riot? Right. in most of American guts, there's a riot going on at all times. And the, the body has to respond with inflammation. There's no other choice. Absolutely. Too late at that point. So yeah. yes. But when we're in that chronic, you know, inflammatory state and we're having to allocate all of our resources just to manage that response, it starts to weaken the immune system, right? And there are organisms that weaken the immune system. So we know that an overgrowth of candida weakens the immune system. They've done tests to see how do um, certain um, white blood cells or kind of immune attack cells in the body, how do they cope with certain bacteria like E. coli and Staph aureus on its own? And how good a job do they do fighting these bacteria in the presence of candida? Mm -hmm. And candida suppresses the immune response. And it suppresses the secretion of something called secretory IgA, which is in our gut, in our mucosal lining, we produce these to help the body deal with these invaders. Well, now we're getting a suppression of it. So it's even easier for those bad guys to overrun the system. So this chronically depressed immune system is a real problem. And then we get into this kind of hamster wheel where we can't fix the overgrowth of these bad guys. We can't fix the leaky gut. And so we're just chronically dealing with inflammation, trying to deal with everything that's making its way into the bloodstream. And the body absolutely gets worn down and has a difficult time coping. Right. So while we're on this topic of pathogens and when we're having this overgrowth of bad pathogens in the bloodstream, in the gut, they're making waste products and they're also producing neurochemicals that are sending messages to our brain, making us have very specific cravings for these undesirable foods that are contributing to the problem, right? So yes, in so many different ways, our gut microbiome controls our brain. So candida was one of those guys that I was talking about. 
when candida overgrows, anytime a patient says to me, God, I just have really bad sugar cravings. I'm immediately thinking, okay, well, we got to see if there's candida overgrowth because it takes over mind control. You think, how does a single cell fungal organism, that's what yeast is, single cell fungal organism. How can it take over my complex brain? Right. But it does. And people are driven to eat sugar and refined carbohydrates. And those, those are the folks who like, they're like, gosh, you know, it's like, I just can't have like a package of cookies in the house because I'm always thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always just kind of fighting the urge to go eat the rest of the pack. And it's like, they can't just have like one or two. They're, they're driven to eat it. You know, we don't get that. You're not like, oh my God, there's a bunch of kale in the fridge. I want it. I want all the kale. We don't do that. We do that. It's going to starve those suckers out. They don't want the kale. <laughs> they do not want you to eat the kale. It's true. Our system. We want to keep it acidic, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I know, you know, if there's intense sugar cravings, candida is like my number one suspect, but it's more than that. Our neurotransmitters, things like dopamine. Um, so dopamine is like an excitatory neurotransmitter. It's kind of a get up and go. It motivates us. But when we have too much dopamine, we can get anxious or even paranoid. Serotonin is the kind of calming neurotransmitter. And what I see time and time again on these labs is that people with this gut dysbiosis, their dopamine is sky high and there's certain bacteria that will cause it to go sky high. So we don't have to fix the dopamine. We have to treat the bacterial overgrowth and that dopamine will come back down. And about 80% of serotonin is made in the gut. So when the gut is all inflamed like this, we aren't producing enough serotonin, which is that calming neurotransmitter, you know, neurotransmitter, the, the make us feel good. So every single dermatological disease that you can name, there are increased instances of depression, anxiety. And so often after we treat the gut, I mean, a lot of my patients come in, in addition to the fact that the skin thing is making them crazy, they can't sleep. It's, you know, emotionally taxing, especially if the derm condition is on their face or or like their hands somewhere people can see it. Um, They're so stressed, they're anxious and depressed. And once we do this gut work and we create a calm gut and a calm immune system, a lot of that anxiety and depression will really calm down. And it's amazing to see it where they do not receive an antidepressant you know, there was nothing involved in specifically treating the anxiety or depression, but it's, I can see it when I start the visit, it's like, oh, I'm feeling so much better. And I'm like, everything about your demeanor has changed. Like right. I see you are, you are emanating a very different vibe now than when I first met you. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's unfortunate because what research shows is about 90% of mental health illness in the form of depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, these are really underlying nutrition deficiencies that have been not, they have not been diagnosed. And most of us are going to the doctor, we're, you know, complaining about our symptoms, they write us a script and say, here, start taking these, and then those pharmacological agents are actually hindering the gut health even more contributing to the problem. And so what I see a lot of times is individuals will start to feel very defeated. What's wrong with me? I'm taking the medication. Why am I not feeling better? And it really try, it drives them more to those suicidal tendencies because they feel so defeated. They have no energy. They, they don't know where to go next because they've thought well, the doctor said, you know, this pill was going to fix it. So I'm not fixed. It must be me. 
And they try to assume all the responsibility without having the appropriate action steps that they could truly make in order to start feeling better without needing that medication. You're, you're absolutely right. And the reason is, I think we've been fed this big lie in America that, well, if you take a pill, it will solve your problems, right? It's all, the magic is in the pill. And if you just take that pill, your you know PCOS is gonna go away or your depression, your anxiety, it's gonna all melt away. Of course, that's not true because really most of those pills are addressing symptoms, not root causes. And I kind of, this will age me, but I kind of liken it to the game whack-a-mole. So when I was growing up, we had a whack-a-mole game. So maybe some of your younger- I listeners. think you and I are in the same age range. I don't know. I'm 49. So I don't know how- well, I'm just a few years behind you. I'm 45. So we're okay. right there. So you know the whack-a-mole, but for younger kids who don't, it was in the arcades where we used to go to play video games. Um, there was this game called whack-a-mole and it was, you had this like soft mallet and there was these little like gophers that would pop up from holes and you had to try to whack them on the head and get them back down. And I really feel like that's a lot of what our healthcare and pharmaceutical industry is. We're playing whack-a-mole. So, okay, you feel depressed. We're going to give you an antidepressant. You can't sleep. We're going to give you an ambient. And we're trying to like whack these on the head, but in trying to like suppress these symptoms, new symptoms are popping up all the time. And it's like, oh, okay, well, so now you've got this new symptom. So now we have to give you another pill for this. And that's how we end up with polypharmacy, which is people just on a host of prescription medications. Obviously that's not working. I'm so glad you went there because this is something that people do not take into consideration because we're treating the body as individual parts and we're going to a gastro, gastroenterologist, we're going to a, you know, a psychiatrist, we're seeing a cardiologist, we're seeing an endocrinologist. Each set of doctors is ordering medications and prescribing medications and the doctors are not communicating with one another with what these patients are. When I talk to patients, most of the time, they have no clue what they're taking. They're like, I don't know, my doctor just gave me some medicine, I take the medicine. And so what we're seeing is really this huge, sad situation with people taking a plethora of medications that are actually having interactions with one another and some of the foods that they are eating. So it's a very dangerous situation to be in. And I think that we need to have more responsibility with these pharmacological agents and the way that they're being prescribed and communicated amongst each, you know, discipline. It's true. You, you need to really be in charge of your own healthcare and manage it. Because like you said, those doctors are not communicating. They don't have time. The average MD sees anywhere from 30 to 50 patients a day. I mean, that's insanity, but that's how insurance is structured is the shorter the visit, the more you can get through, the more you're going to make. And that's why you get like seven to 15 minutes with your doctor. They do not have time to go chat with your other doctors and, you know, really make sure that what you're on and is it cross-reacting, but, you know, really also at a certain point, everything is interacting with each other. It's when we take the pill, it goes into our bloodstream. So everything starts interacting and you're right. We get nutritional deficiencies. We get uh, messing with the microbiome, even not obviously with antibiotics, but other medications we know now are messing with the microbiome. They're messing with that protective mucosal layer. They're giving us leaky gut. So, you know, really the more medications, the higher the risk. Absolutely. 
So would you feel comfortable speaking about steroid use since steroids are one of, you know, the most popular things that are out there being prescribed as that quick fix to help people feel better and the impact that steroids have on gut health specifically? Yeah. So there's, there's two types of steroids that are used. There's topical steroids and then there's oral steroids like prednisone. And my, my germ patients have come to me often. Um, well, the number one thing I think you walk out of a dermatologist's office with is topical steroids, but a lot of my patients have also been given oral steroids. Originally topical steroids were meant to be used for like four to seven days, no more to calm things down. And if it couldn't calm things down, then you were supposed to move on. And there was, there's certain classes of steroids from low potency to high potency. And we didn't used to use mid potency to high potency on kids. We didn't used to use that stuff on the face. There's just been this moving of the, the needle over the years where now we use everything on everybody all the time. And I have patients who come to me who have literally been on steroids for 20 years. And sometimes it's just literally the doctor never told them stop using it because that's really the tool for most doctors is if you have skin inflammation, put a steroid on it to calm it down. It is very effective at the beginning. It, steroids are very powerful medicine and they will cram back down that inflammation into the skin. But what I always say to patients is, yes, that's great, except you have to, again, we have to go back to the root cause. Is the root cause that you or your child, is, is it that they are deficient in steroids? Of course, the answer is no. Nobody is deficient in topical or oral steroids. So that was never the problem. Now, the people who come to see me know, and they, they try to get off that hamster wheel pretty quickly. Um, you know, and it's like the, the steroids aren't working. The doctor's saying more and, and, you know, more potent ones, and we don't want to do that. But, you know, I definitely have the patients who come to me after 20 years. There's a lot of risks with using topical steroids. One, I think actually the biggest risk that isn't talked about is you're not addressing the root cause. So whatever's driving that inflammation in you or your child, it's still there. It's like a baby who's crying. There's something wrong, but instead of addressing it, you shut the door, you leave the room, you go into another room and you turn up the TV real loud. It is true that you don't have to hear the crying anymore, but the problem is still there. And the same thing happens when we're using steroids. So that I actually think is the biggest problem, but we definitely get things like skin thinning, um, and kind of stretching and permanent changes in the skin, that, that's kind of the next step. Um, and then the worst possible situation is something called topical steroid withdrawal syndrome, TSW. It is a very real situation. Conventional medicine still refuses to acknowledge that it exists. There are tens of thousands of people around the world with the very same condition. It's absolutely real. And, um, it's when people have used topical steroids chronically for many years, it can happen sooner than that, but generally it's, it's a pretty long-term use of it. Um, their whole system goes crazy and they get this blown up red inflamed skin all over their body in places they never use steroids. And um, it can take them years to get through it if they don't have proper guidance. And it's really painful and awful. Um, the whole body can be oozing and, and crusting and it's so uncomfortable. People literally have to quit their jobs. Um, and steroids just mess with the whole system, with our whole adrenal system, our cortisol production. Um, so even topical steroids, I think are quite dangerous when used long-term because of the risks that they pose. 
And because we are completely ignoring the underlying inflammation that really, that's what's screaming at us on our skin to be dealt with. Once you start getting those skin problems, the body is giving you a very clear message. There's something gone very wrong in here and I am no longer able to deal with it. And I need a little help here and it's not steroids. Right. And I, and I think honestly, and that's the point that really does drive people to seek assistance when, and especially in, you know, the female population, when women start to have all of the skin issues, they start, they try to use all the quick fixes that it's not working. And then that's what allows them to have the desire to go and see the doctor. But unfortunately, they're not always seeking the right kind of guidance. Yeah. If you, usually if you keep going back to the dermatologist, you're going to keep getting steroids. And then when the topical stop working, they will go to the oral steroids like prednisone. And so people who want different options, who want to get to the root cause, you know, unfortunately you have to come out of that system and seek the care of, you know, a naturopathic doctor, a functional medicine doctor, a nutritionist, somebody who understands that we're looking at outside of the skin alone. And we're really looking for root causes. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So tell me about the, the urine and the fecal testing that you're doing. Is this something that insurance covers for patients or do we have to pay out of pocket in order to obtain these, these tests? Unfortunately, it's not. I mean, there's sometimes there's some insurance who may give some amount of coverage, um, but generally they're out of pocket expenses. They're called functional medicine tests. Um, and my patients understand inherently, you know, why we need to do it because they'll come to me with blood work and, you know, the doctor will say, well, everything looks fine in your blood work. And meanwhile, they're broken out head to toe in some terrible rash or psoriasis or something. We know that they're not okay. And again, conventional medicine has not yet gotten on board with this kind of work that what's happening in the gut is really impacting the skin and autoimmunity. We're just starting now to officially make that connection with autoimmunity, you know, and things like depression. So hopefully someday we'll be able to cover labs to do stool testing and urine testing for depression, for autoimmune conditions, for derm, but right now they're out of pocket expenses. And I'll be honest with you, one of the biggest rebuttals I hear from individuals is, oh, I don't want to take that test because my insurance won't cover it. I personally do not take insurance. I am private pay only. And I find that the individuals who work with me, they're highly motivated because they are having to spend out of pocket in order to get the solutions. And they tend to have the best outcomes. But a lot of people are stuck in this, well, if insurance isn't covering it, then I'm not going to do it. And I feel like it's really our personal responsibility in order to change our insurance practices. If we have individuals who are no no longer supporting that kind of um, method, right, of just going through the standard testing, and we start allocating our funds towards companies that are offering these testing, we're able to purchase these things from them, we're gonna be taking a lot of the market value and the insurance company is gonna be put in a position where they're going to have to change their practices. One of the things that drives me insane is um, vitamin D testing. Doctors are, I'm sorry, insurance has decided that for a female under the age of 45, it's no longer a standard test. And so we see chronic vitamin D levels that are so subclinical and and super, super low 
but the insurance company will not cover that test. And these people are walking around with these very dangerous deficiencies, having no clue. And when I have individuals purchase those tests out of pocket, they're cheap. They're not, they're not a lot of money. And they, we get the, you know, values back and they're a six, they're a 10, they're a 13. And it's like, huh, how can they not think that this is an important metric to be measuring for our overall health? Vitamin D plays so many roles in the body. It's vital. So what are your it, thoughts? Yeah, it's, I, so I agree with you. It is very frustrating. Um, and we do need to know the D level because there's, there's kind of like a daily D that I'll put somebody on who's got good levels. But if, if we're going to start loading them up with D and trying to increase their D, we have to know where they are and where they're starting because D is, as you know, a fat soluble vitamin and there's water soluble vitamins, which are like the B vitamin C. We can take those. We're going to pee out the extras. So that's why if you take B vitamins and you're peeing yellow or orange, you're just peeing out the excess. But with vitamins A, D, E, K, um, you're not going to pee it out. You're going to store it in your fat. And so we can do damage as healthcare practitioners in loading up somebody on D just saying, well, I think you're probably deficient in D. So let me just give you like 50,000 a day for like a few months and you could put them in a toxic level. So you're right. We have to test. We have to know where the D is in order to know how to properly treat or you know manage those levels. And they're not covered. We are a society that's really based on, um, just treating disease instead of prevention. And D is one of those things where, you know, they can just deny it because even though we know D is overall important for immunity, it's not on what we say, like the standard of care treatment plan in conventional medicine. And so they don't have to test for it because it's not part of any of their treatment protocols. We know it's important. We know we need to know those values in order to properly and responsibly dose vitamin D. But yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. It's, it's unfortunate because vitamin D plays such an important role with our mental health too. When, when I see all of these really low vitamin D levels, I mean, it makes complete sense why these individuals, you know, are suffering from severe depression and really lacking motivation to want to actually get in the kitchen and make any changes with their diet. They just don't have the energy. They don't have the core components that they need to be able to get in there and start doing it. Yeah. I mean, I wish all nutritional testing was part of our annual labs or, you know, even every five years, you know, they'll, they'll cover CBC and CMP. They'll check the kidney, they'll check the liver, but you know, we're not checking nutritional status of people and that can contribute to so much disease on every level. Absolutely. It's, it's just uh, unbelievable. So tell me a little bit about with your experience and working in dermatology, what specific foods do you see causing a lot of problems for individuals? So sometimes it does vary by the different dermatologic disease. If we take rosacea, for example, there are many food triggers in rosacea. Um, some of the main categories are going to be hot beverages. So the temperature, it's not caffeine, it's hot. Um, things like alcohol. Um, and things with uh, something called cinnamaldehyde. Um, and because all of those things are what we call vasodilators, they dilate blood vessels and that causes flushing and that will cause flaring of rosacea for people. So, you know, in, in, the, in those instances, we go through what are the kind of main triggers and we figure out for people 
um, also like spices and stuff like that. And it's not everything for everyone. So sometimes people can drink wine, but not beer or, you know, eat cinnamon, but not clove or something like that. Um, so we have to figure it out kind of on a disease by disease basis. But overall, I would say two of the biggest offenders would be dairy and wheat. Okay. Um, again, dairy, and I go through this with my patients, there's patient education in every visit. Um, I ask them, you know, why does dairy exist on the planet? And a lot of them kind of think about it. Like, what? Why? I don't know. It's just cheese is delicious. You know, <laughs> we kind of get to, well, it's food for baby mammals. That's the reason that it exists. In order to be a mammal, by definition, the babies have to be fed milk. And so every mammalian mama is going to produce milk for the babies. But we are the only species that drinks milk of another species. We are the only species that drinks milk into adulthood. It is a food filled with growth hormones and all sorts of other things. Um, and we're not really meant to drink it beyond infancy nor other species. And it, it just causes a lot of problems, food allergies, food intolerances, um, food sensitivities, and wheat um, with gluten and gliadin. Um, there can either be, of course, severe reactions like in celiac disease, but it can, it can also cause some pretty big food sensitivities and it contains something called zonulin. And zonulin tells, uh, we have the cells in our intestines have things called tight junctions and they're supposed to be stuck together nice and tight like this. And then they do open up when we eat to let those little tiny food particles through so that we can get zinc and vitamin D and everything out to every cell in the body. But then they're supposed to close back up. Well, zonulin and wheat tells those junctions open up. So every time we eat wheat, we get this kind of leaky gut. And so whether or not somebody has any sort of food any sort of antibodies to it. Um, if we're treating leaky gut, I have them try to stay away from gluten, at least while we're doing that. But it's it's not really a food source we're meant to be eating all that much. And we eat it three times a day in America. Well, and not just that, but then we also, also have to take into consideration the glycophosphate that is being treated with these, you know, wheat plants in order to harvest them in a timely manner. Yeah. They're so heavily saturated that, you know, I, I personally, I feel like there's a very heavy correlation with the way that we are harvesting the wheat through the use of pesticides in order to kill it so that the farmers can go out there and bundle it all up in a timely manner. Um, and a lot of these GI issues that ultimately result in some of the autoimmune stuff that we're seeing happen. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt glyphosate is completely toxic to the gut. And I tell patients to not eat regular, like you want to at least be eating organic wheat. The problem with organic wheat is twofold. One, we know that farms that are organic are still contaminated with glyphosate from the wind and from the, the water, because it's just so pervasive in our uh, society for, for farming. So it's, it's pretty hard to get completely glyphosate free in North America. Uh, but two, it, it still has azonulin and we still produce antibodies to it. But yeah, I mean, glyphosate, it's a, it's a weed killer. It's a pesticide. It's, it's meant to be toxic and it's completely toxic to the bacteria in our gut and it's terrible for us. So you are just a wealth of knowledge, my friend. It is such an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. You are speaking my language. We are so much in alignment in the way that we think and practice to really, truly help others be able to achieve their greatest quality of life so that they can feel good, look good, have longevity, vitality. So for the audience members who are listening and they're curious about research, 
tell me where, where do you recommend individuals go to find more research that they can utilize to make their decisions on what they choose to do? What I find, and especially in recent and within the last six months, is that we're seeing a lot of censorship here in the United States, and it's very difficult to get our hands on research that isn't biased. You know, I, one of the things that I like to educate individuals on is that we really have to look into where is this research coming from and who is funding this research? Because this is where the problem is. We're, we're putting out a lot of false positive, you know, hope for people because there's an agenda behind this. So for you, you know, what is your advice? Where, where do you go to get the research? So as a doctor, I have access to databases called like PubMed, which is where the published research goes. But you're very right. Just because a, a report shows up on PubMed, it doesn't mean anything. You, you have to be trained to know how to analyze the research. You want to see who funded the study. You're right. Was it funded by like Kraft? And it's telling you that, you know, their coloring in macaroni and cheese is just fine and healthy. You know, yes. or was it that, you know, a different group? Unfortunately, it's very expensive to do research. So a lot of the research is funded by, you know, pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that. We don't have as much funding in the, you know, more holistic world to do just research on like plants and, you know, even the supplement world. I mean, there's a little more money in the supplement world now, but these, this type of research is very costly. So you can Google and find a lot of research for free as a just a layperson, but you do want to see who's who's um, funding the study. And there's a section to every research report called like conflicts, and they're supposed to list there whether there are conflicts. You know, like do they own the company that just tested this supplement? Now, even with that, sometimes people will list that there are no conflicts, and then actually when you dig in and you research that person, you will find that they own the company. They should have listed that that was a conflict. So it is very difficult. On some level, you know, I tell people, you, you have to also go back to your gut and what makes sense to you, right? So every time we try to get to these like Franken foods and it's like, oh, Soylent or whatever, this is a meal replacement. It's like, but is it really? I don't care how much research is out there telling me that this Franken food is a great meal replacement. It's not because it's not a whole food. And our you know, genes are the same as they have been for hundreds of thousands of years. We evolved to be out in nature, foraging, picking plants, you know, killing animals and eating them in, in that kind of a state, not like turning it into like a buffalo wing or something. Um, and so I think you just kind of have to go back sometimes to reason and logic and just ask yourself, does this even make sense? Is this anything like a whole food? Is this anything like somebody could have eaten 30,000 years ago? And if the answer is no, just don't put it in your mouth. <laughs> Fabulous advice. I appreciate that. Um, I also, I tend to look a lot into what's going on over in Europe because their food practices are so very different than ours. Their regulations, their standards, they really protect their citizens with food policy where we do not have that here in the United States, unfortunately. In my opinion, I feel like we are caught in this very vicious, um, you know, profit machine that big food, farm, 
and our medical Western um, medical practices are all just very much correlated and it's pumping out a lot of profit and keeping us very sick, overweight and uh, broke, you know? There is something to that. And, and you can add in the federal government with that because there's a revolving door with like the FDA and the pharmaceutical rep, the boards and right. So people are going in and out of private and public. Um, and so, you know, if you used to be an executive at Kraft and you're now at the FDA, you know, the kind of rules that you're going to make are going to be influenced by that. Um, so it is a problem. And, and you're right. Europe is better. They're also much better when it comes to personal care products. What we allow in this country in our personal care products and kids, babies, and you know, adults is really despicable compared to the protection that European citizens will get. And you know, the US, the US-based companies who are making these products, they will make two different sets of topicals. One that has to abide by European regulations that's much healthier and a cheaper version with all the junk that they sell here in America that unsuspecting consumers are just putting on themselves and their babies every day. Absolutely. I was just, I just released a podcast with a food consultant who sells um, food from Italy to the manu to all of the high-end restaurants here in, in Southern California. Oh. And we were talking about canola oil and over in Italy, canola oil, the only thing that it is allowed to be used for is a machinery lubricant. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And here in the U.S., if we look at our packaged, refined, processed foods, it's one of the main ingredients and in majority of those products. And that's frightening. Yeah, it's in everything over here. Yeah, everything. And it's frightening that over there, it's only allowed to lube up machines. And here we're lubing up our bodies with it, you know, and, and we wonder why we are having such high prevalence of so many diseases, so many diseases, you know, including cancer. And it's just unfortunate. And, and I love the fact that both you and I are committed to bring about awareness, really try to get people back to the basics so that we can reclaim our health, have sovereignty over our bodies and start living our best lives. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to share the conversation with you. Where can the audience members find more out about you? How can they follow you? What are you up to? So um, my website is integrativedermatologycenter.com and I'm licensed to see patients in California, Oregon, and Washington. Uh -huh. um, if any of your listeners are outside of those states, they can write to me and I can try to get them to somebody who can maybe help them. Um, if they actually want more research and more information, um, there's a 20 course series I put together with a group called at learnskin.com and it's meant as continuing medical education for doctors but it's a lot of these things that we're talking about. So um, there's like a, and the, the, all the courses are free. Um, so there's a course on like gut health and skin disease and how it's related. And so they can go sign up at learnskin.com and take the course for free. And I cite all the published research in there. Um, and there's lots of courses. So there's like a naturopathic approach to acne, naturopathic approach to psoriasis, naturopathic approach to eczema, um, lots and lots of courses that they can take. and you know, we've put together that research for them, kind of connecting all these pieces. And um, if you're not a doctor, you won't get continuing medical education, but you will get an education, so. Oh, wow. 
That's amazing. I have immense, immense respect for you and what you're doing. And thank you so much for all of the work and your commitment to improving the health of the United States. We are truly, truly honored to have medical practitioners like you out there fighting for us and putting together resources like that. My gosh, what an amazing feat. Uh, amazing. Everybody, you better check that out. There is no excuses. It's free for God's sake. My gosh. It is. Well, I will make sure that I link all of those in the show notes so that individuals have easy access and can find you and, and locate those um, resources as well. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I would love to do this again with you in the near future. So let's definitely stay connected. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, Heather. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. Well, my best to you. Thanks for joining us on the Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Make sure you leave a review and let me know what you think. I love reading your feedback. Come hang out with me on Instagram at Heather Duranja. And don't forget to take a screenshot that you're listening to the podcast and tag me. I love to share it. See you on the next episode.